Well, hey, everybody, if you got a Bible, would you open it up to the book of Galatians? Uh, if you're using your app, Galatians, in the New Testament, we are in chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, and as you turn there, um, we will be looking at verses 15 through 29, and we're going to take a couple of sermons on this. Um, most of today we'll be diving in on this idea of justification by faith alone, and why did God set it up this way. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to read verses 13 and 14 as kind of the on-ramp, because verses 15 and 29 are the reasons why the explanation um, why Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law and how this all works. So I'll read verses 13 and 14 and then our passage will be 15 through 29. Now before, um, before we uh, read that, I just want to say on behalf of my wife and my family, just thank you for your support. Some of you are guests with us and um, my wife and my little girl were put in the hospital um, over a week ago two separate things, nothing related, um, and um, I just am wanting to say thanks for your support and your care, um, and uh, I also just want to say that um, we have been going through a lot um, as a family, and um, we are a little weak, but we're confident, and I just want you to know, no matter what noises are out in the foyer... <laughs> I just want you to know that um, you have shown us Jesus, and you are a precious church. And I might be a little more weepy than normal, so forgive me. So I want to read verses 13 and 14, and then pray. The Word of God says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us, Jesus in our place. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus hung on the tree at Calvary to take away our sins in our place. Christ redeemed us. That's what that says. Now continue verse 14. He did this so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, Blessing given to Abraham that through Abraham all the families of the earth would be blessed. That that blessing might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law so that Christ... In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit in our hearts through faith. Let's pray. Father, right now I just ask that there would be an awe over those words. Jesus stood in the place that he should not have been to take the punishment and wrath from you, O oh God, justly deserved by us, and he stood in our place so that we might have all the blessings made to Abraham and that your Holy Spirit might dwell in us through faith alone. 
Teach us, I pray. Soften us, I pray. Make us loving, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Marriage is a beautiful thing. It is wonderful. I've been married for almost 20 years to my precious wife, Dana. And as we think about marriage, I think it's something to understand that you would say that, it'd be safe to say marriage is more than just about physical intimacy and having kids and a tax break and someone just to kind of hang out with. It's more than just knowing facts about my wife, Dana Cordell. Marriage is something created by God for His glory because it's a picture. It's a picture that that covenant made together is about me enjoying her as a person. Friendship. Knowing her like I know no other person. And I get to know her not to make, a, make me more married, for I am just as married on day one as I am on year 20. I'm just married. You don't get more married, you're just married. But I know her in a way now that I did not. There is a depth of intimacy. And so now when we begin to look at the scriptures, here's the caution. Paul is going to walk through some doctrines, some teaching about how we are saved. This idea of what is core to the gospel would be justification by faith alone. And so now all of a sudden, when you say a word like justification, people come and it's like, that seems a little bit beyond my pay grade. It's a little hard to understand. And so what you do is you put on your thinking cap and you try to understand what things mean. All the while, you miss the point of why you're understanding. So that you can know your God. The more you know about Him, the more you love being with Him. The more communion with Him is your greatest goal. The more you just want to sit at His feet, not to earn His favor, but to be with the one you treasure. So we're going to dive in and we're going to be trying to understand some things that are maybe a little bit, make you think a little bit. The deep end of the pool in some ways. I want you to remember the deep end of the pool is so that you would enjoy swimming. The great doctrines of God are so that you would enjoy God. And so, let's think hard, but may it do something here that we love our God. So today, Paul is after this major idea. Why freedom is not through doing for God, but what He has done for us. Or to state it as Paul states it, why freedom is through justification by faith alone, not justification by the law or doing what is required by the law given to Moses. We're going to answer this question, why freedom is through justification by faith alone, and there are four answers. One is that by nature we are recipients. Two is that because the law did not undo the original promise. 
That's going to seem a little abstract. Trust me, it matters. Let's keep going. Why freedom is through justification by faith alone? Because the law shows us that we are helpless and hopeless to save ourselves. And then why freedom is through justification by faith alone? Because God delivered on his promise. Jesus came. So, let's dive in here. Why freedom? Being set free from the penalty and eventually the power of sin over our lives. Why freedom is through justification. We have talked about this before. That is a legal term of being declared not guilty. And when it's used in the scriptures, it is the fact that a person who is justly wrong is being declared not guilty and at the same time is being given the rightness, the perfection of God credited to our account. This justification. We are declared not guilty and we get his righteousness to stand in our stead. That's how we are not guilty even though we are guilty. And how do we get access to that? It's by faith alone. We are recipients. Now let's dive in. Two things that Paul is after. One is that anything other than faith in Christ will be found impotent to save. Anything other than faith in Christ will be meaningless to rescue you from your sins. So he says, verse 13, Christ redeemed us. Your actions did not redeem you. Your betterness than your neighbor does not redeem you or Jesus would not have had to come. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. The law says anyone who does not obey this law fully is under a curse. The curse of just condemnation, damnation for all eternity, this sense of not experiencing the loving presence of God forever and ever and ever. There is no greater punishment. And everyone who does not do fully what the law requires is under that curse. Jesus redeemed us from that curse. We could not. Paul is after the fact that it's only faith in Jesus, not our works, that redeems. The second thing he's after is this is that it has come to be kind of in vogue for the Galatian church that salvation is a Jewish-only club. That if you're a part of this club, you get saved. Everybody else must look like who's in the club. And Paul says, no way, no how. This is why he says in chapter 3, verse 1, O foolish Galatians, you are fools. Who confused you, bewitched you? Jesus alone is the Redeemer. And so it says in verse 2, look at this, chapter 3, verse 2, let me ask you only this question. Did you receive the Spirit? Let's just stop there. He is tipping his hand already. You did nothing to make the Spirit of God jump inside the heart. That was a receiving act. Receiving act that I did. Did that happen because you did the works of the law or did that happen because you heard? 
You heard the good news that Jesus Christ stood in your place, died the death that you deserved, and you trusted in his sacrifice in your place. You heard and believed that he was raised from the dead three days later and that that was your hope that he could grant you eternal life. Is that how it happened? Did you just trust him and receive this as a gift? Or was it really because you did something for him? And they know the answer is, I saw him crucified. And I was overwhelmed by his beauty. The answer was faith alone. They are recipients. So now you zip over to verse 14, the verse right before we jump into the passage today. And it says this, Christ redeemed, because it's mid-sentence. So Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law so that, verse 14, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, which we'll talk about in a second, might come to the Gentiles. It's not just a Jewish-only club. It's an all-peoples club. So that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. You get to be a part of God's family through faith. We receive, we receive, we receive. You will never be secure in Christ until you learn how to receive. I've been in the hospital a lot recently. And you are not in the hospital because you are competent. And can handle your own problems. You're in the hospital because there's nothing you can do to solve the problem. And as I sit there and I watch them put IV after IV in my little girl. I could not do that. She laid there helpless. And the doctors come. And they start ministering to her in such a way that I cannot totally left to be a recipient and you begin to see that there are things in your life in the everyday that God gives you as little snapshots to remind you about what is true all of your life Paul says it this way what in the world do you have that you did not receive the answer is you've received everything Everything is a gift. Nothing is owing to your beauty and fame and worthiness and ingenuity. Everything that you have is a gift. And then you're just like, oh, wait, I can name 10 things. Clothes on my back. Something I did. I'm telling you, when it comes to what matters, what do you have that you did not receive? You cannot rescue yourself. You cannot rescue yourself from your sin. You cannot rescue yourself from the shame and guilt that you feel. You cannot. You're a recipient. And if you don't have money to pay someone back, and I come and I lay money in your hands, the only thing you can do is to receive it. And when the good news of the gospel comes to you, it says you are forgiven. And there is nothing you can do to earn that but trust that I did it in your stead. When we sing those words, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what do you do with that? When Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt right here, what do you do? Go out and do 10 nice things for somebody and hopes it goes away? When Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, 
Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because it was the sinless Savior who died. My sinful soul is counted free. God, the just, is satisfied. He's pardoned me. Friends, you becoming a part of the family of God is you admitting you have nothing to offer but dirty water for the purity of his cleansing water and holding out your hands and saying, save me. If you have never gotten to that point, you might not know Jesus. Because my Savior says, when you come to the end of yourself, that's when you're ready to be saved. Charles Spurgeon says this, People must be told they are dead and that only the Holy Spirit can quicken them. That the Spirit works according to his own good pleasure and that no person can claim his visitation or deserve his aid. This is a thought to be very discouraging teaching. And so it is. But men and women, they need to be discouraged when they are seeking salvation in a wrong manner. To put them out of conceit of their own abilities is a great help toward bringing them to look out of self to another, even the Lord Jesus. The doctrine of election and other great truths like justification by faith alone, which declare salvation to be all grace and to be not the right of the creature, but the gift of a sovereign God are all calculated to hide pride from man and so to prepare him or her to receive God's mercy. It's not our right to be saved. God owes us nothing. It is sheer grace. Isn't that what Paul says? By grace alone you have been saved. This is a gift of God, not of works, lest anybody should talk about how great they are. Dear friends, we are recipients. And here's what happens. The Galatian church was doing just fine. It says, it tells us, they started out loving Jesus and being recipients. But then, somebody comes to them and begins to tell them, you can really be secure if you just do this. And it's like, that seems to make sense because if, there's, if I can do something and touch it and I can see the result, then that makes me secure. So just do this one little part of the law and that's how you really know you're in. It seemed like a good teaching. Makes sense. And so they begin to live that way. That it's not by justification by faith alone anymore. It's by doing something. And that doing something is something I can touch. It's something I can feel. And that makes me secure in God's love. Paul says, no. All the security you need is to look at the cross and say, God sent his only son to die before your eyes. To say, I love you this much. And you couldn't do it. So friends, 
how are we tempted? Even though many of us saved and we would say, yes, justification by faith alone. How many of us are tempted to kind of smuggle in ever so slightly something that we can do in order to that be our security? Let me tell you what it smells like. It's not just obedience. Obedience is not burden. The Bible says in 1 John that to follow God is not a burden. To obey Him is not a burden because the Spirit of God is within you. I'm not talking about obedience, but I am talking about a burden. A burden of being found. The only way you can find significance or acceptance is by doing things. By having your own effort. Here's what it smells like for you to smuggle those things in like Galatians were. What happens is. It's doable for a season. It's doable for a season to live rightly. Right? But what happens when all of a sudden you get weak? When you get weak. And your performance isn't good enough anymore. When your goodness gets weak, the self-righteous can pull it off for a while. But then their drive decreases and suffering comes in and the strong person persona cannot be maintained because everybody has a limit. Then limits seem to compound and you get weak muscles and weak minds and weak memory and weak emotions. Weakness, weakness. The law, which we will see in just a second, it exposes weakness. So what do you do when you feel too weak? What does it look like that you are leaning on the law for your sanctification? Let me say it this way. When anyone acts superior to others, you have lost sight of the cross of Christ. And you are leaning on the law. Whenever you are acting superior to others, you have lost sight of the cross and you are leaning on the law like the Galatians were leaning on the law for their security and justification. You must repent of it. I must repent of it. Or it will crush us because you will get weak. You will not be able to hold up your superiority forever. It will crush you. If you think yourself better than others and you are more aware of your performance compared to to the Savior's mercy towards you, then you have probably started leaning on the law, smuggling in your deeds into the already finished work of Jesus. Hear me. If you are more aware of your performance compared to others than the Savior's mercy to you, you are leaning on the law. There are so many marriages filled with couples looking down upon one another and acting superior and forgetting the mercy of God given to them and it's destroying relationships. There's so many friendships that started out so good but then began to be perverted when superiority begins the gaze rather than the cross of Christ. So many times when children 
children are told by angry parents how to act when those angry parents have forgotten that they themselves are recipients of mercy too. And they're in need of grace. Friends, any time we act superior, we have begun to smuggle in our performance. We have lost sight of that Christ's cross is enough. There's other ways too, like in Galatians chapter 2. If you find yourself separating from others because they don't measure up to your standards or don't fit your religious or social or political affiliations or preferences, you are quote-unquote out of step with the gospel. And you are leaning on the law for your justification and sanctification. So, justification by faith alone means that we are recipients. And we cannot forget that we are recipients. So any goodness in you is something that you have received. And it affects how we relate to one another. Now, Why freedom is through justification by faith alone is because one, we're recipients, but two, because the law did not undo the promise. Paul is after this idea. You're a recipient. Everything is from grace. So why in the world are you now acting as if you can do things in order to get God's approval? Well, one of their arguments was, well, didn't the law, which came after the promise made to Abraham, in some senses undo that promise and mean that we now relate to you by doing in order to get life. We ought to do the law by getting life. And Paul says, no way, no how. That's not how it works. That it did not replace the promise. Instead, it had a different purpose. Look at chapter verse 15. To give a human example, brothers or sisters, Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to his offsprings. Plural, it was singular. Referring to many, but no, it refers to one. Well, who's the offspring? It says, verse 16, and to your offspring who is Christ. Now, this is what I mean. I'm really thankful Paul did that because I need some help. But after reading what he means, I still had trouble. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, after the promise given, the people were in exile or were in a slavery in Egypt for over 430 years. For 430 years. And so he says the law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. Do you see? This is where I get this. The law which came does not annul or render void a covenant previously ratified by God, making the promise void. This is kind of how it works. So if you have an iPhone and you go and you have an update... You have this new thing that's just come out, iOS 12. So when you get iOS 12, you understand that to mean iOS 12 is replacing iOS 11. Okay? Forgive me, Android users, if I just alienated you. So if you do an update and something moves from 1.0 to 2.0, then you understand that now 2.0 has replaced 1.0. This is the mentality that the Jews were using here. They were like, okay, promise came. Now the law came after it. It must replace the promise. Paul says that's not how it worked. That's how you're acting, but that's not how it worked. 
The promise was made to Abraham and to his offspring. So now we need to understand what in the world is a promise. Go to Genesis 15. Should be on the screen for you. In Genesis 13 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, this promise that is spoken of here in the book of Galatians is the promise given to Abraham that would be applied not only to him, but through him all the families of the earth would be blessed, which means it's to anyone who gets the promise the way that Abraham got the promise. Well, how did Abraham get the promise? Genesis 15 tells us, verse, chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. Beautiful words here. In the midst of fear, God just speaks to Abram and says, I'm your shield. I'm your protector. I'm enough. And then he goes on. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, okay, oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue to be childless and the heir, the only heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you've given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. Verse four, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and says, this man is not going to be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. Now we're dealing with what he was thinking physiological impossibilities. The dude's old. How does he have children? Verse 5. And he brought Abram outside and said, Look toward the heaven. Number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. They're going to be that numerous. And it says, what? And he counted all the stars because he knew if he counted them, then God would accept him. No, that's not how it worked. He looked up at the stars, overwhelmed by their number, and he had a decision. Do I trust this God or not? And he says, I trust him. I don't know how it's going to roll, but I trust him. And it says here, he believed the Lord, faith, And it was counted to him as righteousness, justification. You have in Genesis chapter 15, justification by faith alone. Not because he counted stars, not because Abram was old, nothing. He brought nothing to the table, recipient, I trust you and I receive what only you can give. Only you are going to be able to make my descendants as numerous as the stars are in the sky. Justification by faith alone. And so... How is this going to happen? How is this, how can God secure this covenant? Well, he tells us in verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I'm going to possess it? How do I know that this is going to happen? And he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old. Female goat, three years old. Ram, three years old. A turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought all of these out. So Abram goes on a hunting spree, gathers all of these animals, and then he starts slaughtering them, cutting them in half. It doesn't take a big imagination to imagine how bloody the scene was. These animals split in two, and it says he laid them in half over against each other, which means he put one half over here and one half over here with a space in between. Why would he do this? Because covenants were ratified by walking between the pieces of the animals and saying, let it be done to me what was just done to the slaughter of these animals if I don't keep my end of the covenant. And so, 
Verse 12 of Genesis 15. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain, you can take me at my word, God says, that your offspring, they will be aliens and strangers. They will be immigrants in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will experience harsh suffering for 400 years. 430 to be exact, which... We see in Exodus chapter 12 and we also heard in Galatians 3. But I will bring judgment on the nation that afflicts you. And afterward they shall come out. Your people will come out with great possessions. I will be with you. Is what God is ultimately saying. And so friends, just a little parenthetical expression. Why is the 430 years so important? Why does that matter? God declares before it happens what is going to happen and he delivers just at the right time. God is not slow to do his word. But he is always on time. So friends, when you have to wait 4.3 hours, it's exhausting. When you have to wait 4.3 days to see something come available... It wears you out. Shift that to months. Shift that to years. Shift it to 43 years. But we're talking 430 years before this promise is realized. If anything is going to push your doubt, it would be that. And God shows up. He did what he said he was going to do. He did not abandon them through all of that suffering. And he delivered the people of Israel from the oppression of the Egyptians. Now, let's don't lose the scene. Pieces are here. Abram's getting ready to walk through to say, let it be done to me. If I don't keep my end of the covenant, what happens? Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. You could almost see Abram stepping in between them and God, this flaming torch and this smoking pot. So The people of Israel were led regularly by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. Fire is representing the presence of God. So basically, Abraham about to take a step. God steps in between. Fiery pot, flaming torch comes through. The presence of God passes between to say this. You're not going to be able to uphold your end. So, I'm going to uphold my end and yours. Let it be done to me what was done to these animals, God says. If you fail the covenant. Justification by faith alone. You will fail the covenant. Therefore it was done to God. His son Jesus Christ died in our place. So that the only hope is to believe in the one who died in our place. It's justification by faith alone. And so then Genesis 17 goes on to repeat this promise. Well, Verse 18 of uh, Genesis 15, sorry. On the day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I will give this land. Now, Genesis 17 repeats this, and it says, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. This is the promise Paul is speaking of in Galatians chapter 3. I told you it'd be a lot of work in here. Don't forget. That you might know a God who is always on time and who always loves you. 
So, let's look at it now in Galatians chapter 3. It says, this is what I mean, verse 17. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Do you see? It has always been justification by faith alone. Always. From the very beginning. And some of you might be asking the question, so how did people in the Old Testament get saved? And we know in the New Testament it's through Jesus. It's always been through Jesus. It tells you that in Romans chapter 3. They were anticipating and looking towards the one who would come and die in their place. They were looking towards that singular offspring to whom the promise was made who would die in the place of sinners. Their hope, Abraham's hope, was in a God who keeps his promises through a coming suffering servant, the Messiah, whom we now know is Jesus himself. It's always been through Jesus. It's always been through hope in a coming Messiah as the only one who could deliver from sins. Justification by faith alone. So, verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. So he's saying that it cannot come by the law because that would undo the promise. It's always been justification by faith alone because God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Well, then why the law? That's what the people are going to be asking. If the law didn't undo this, then why in the world did you give it in the first place? I'm glad you asked, Paul says. Verse 19, and this leads to our third point. Why freedom is through justification by faith alone, not only because the law did not undo the promise, but because the law shows us we are helpless and hopeless to save ourselves. Look at verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of, say the word, transgressions. That means when sin came, the law came. I don't know if you saw this. Frontier Airlines asked a woman to get off of their plane. The reason was is because this woman had a support animal. The problem was the support animal was a squirrel. So her support squirrel did not meet the requirements of Frontier Airlines. Literally, Frontier Airlines had a, a law written that says rodents are not allowed on the plane. And so they says that includes squirrels because this woman brings a support squirrel onto the airplane. And the article goes on to say that airlines have been in this um, lawmaking business now for support animals because so many people have been stretching the boundaries of support animals. You know, a support parakeet and a support squirrel and a support all kinds of things beyond usually like a dog or something like that. So I don't think cats can support much of anything. So anyway, <laughs> that's a little personal bias. <laughs> Sorry, cat lovers. I still love you. So does God. You just don't love cats. So, um, so these airlines, they make all of these laws because people are doing what? They're, they're starting to bring these things that they never dreamed would be part of the support animal sphere. I guarantee you, Frontiers is going to go back, Airlines is going to write into their policy, including rodents and squirrels, they cannot be support animals. Why would they do something like that? Because where there's transgression comes the law. That's how it works. 
You create law once you see that something was going sideways. I've said this before, but California has a law that you can't have a lion in your swimming pool. Where do you think that law came from? It came because some idiot took a lion and put it in a swimming pool. Now, I love that idiot, and so does God. But that was a bad idea. And so you have laws created because of transgression. So why was the law given? It was never given to give life. It was given because of sin. How do I know it was never given to give life? Look at verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. The law was never given so that you would now be able to get life in God. The law was given for different reasons. It was given so that you would know what sin was and you would not walk in sin anymore. People of Israel, then why are you smuggling the law as a means of life? No, it was given so that you would know what sin is. Why was the law given? It was added because sin existed. Why was the law given? Romans chapter 5 verse 20 says, No, the law came in to increase trespass. What does that mean? It means there are things that they weren't saying were wrong until the law came and spelled it out and says that's wrong. And then they knew that the things they were calling benign were actually cancerous. The things they were calling okay were actually sinful. The law came in and put names to their sin. And therefore they knew they were sinners. Why did the law come? The law came as a guardrail. As a guardian. Or the image used here as a tutor until Christ could come. Where do I get that? I want you to look at verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. So just think, it's a small protector waiting until the massive protector comes. And then once that protector's here, I don't need the other one. Or the image here, it could also be translated as tutor. You have this interim tutor until the real teacher comes, and then you don't need the tutor anymore. So the law was given to keep them walking in the faith, to keep them understanding what sin was so that they would be helpless in themselves and lean on Jesus until Jesus himself comes. It was never meant to give life. It was only meant to spell out what sin was and to actually show them they were hopeless and helpless to save themselves. Have you ever tried to read the book? Now, many of you, this, I want you to be careful. This is not shaming, okay? If you haven't, it's perfectly fine. But have you ever tried to read the book of Leviticus? Okay, yep, some of you have. Whenever I'm talking to somebody who's not a believer, just trying to explore the things of faith, or someone who's brand new, where do you normally start a book? At the beginning, right? So they're just like, okay, I want to learn about God. I'm going to start at the beginning. So, you know, this is for the, not for the faint of heart. They start in Genesis and like, man, some of these stories are pretty whacked out. And so, but they keep going because they're kind of interesting. And you get to Exodus and they're pretty fun too, you know. They've got some 
cool deliverance story, so you keep reading. But you get to Leviticus, and you stop dead in your tracks. You start reading that thing, and it's just like, good night. Why all these lists of laws, and why all of these, you get into numbers, genealogies, and why all of this? And it just wears you out, and most people just stop. They just stop. You make three books in, and you're done. Why is that? Do you know that that is the exact design of the book of Leviticus? It is meant to wear you out. Because the portrait painted from the Old Testament is not that the law gives life, but that the law is insufficient to save and that humanity is a wreck left on their own. And when you read law, 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 613 laws spelled out over the Old Testament, when you read those, they're meant to create fatigue because you were never meant to lean on that for your salvation. It's in there to create fatigue. And the genealogies are in there to create a sense of fatigue because why do I want to read all these names? Because they represent 40 plus years of all of this happening. Fatigue after fatigue because the law was never meant to be the main teacher. It was meant to be a guardian until you get the real teacher. It was never meant to be the main protector until it was meant to be the the interim protector so that Christ would come and the Spirit of God would come in you. That's when the new covenant is. The law is written on your heart. And I would argue that's the Spirit of God coming and living inside of you. The law is written here. It's not external anymore. It's internal. The Spirit of God inside you helping you obey and to walk in God's ways. It's not that law is against God. We have in Galatians chapter 6 the law of Christ that we walk in. But this law specifically was the law given to Moses, the law given to Israel. It is not the law that we are to be obeying. We'll talk about next time. Specific laws in the Old Testament and how we are to process those. But remember... The main question we're answering today is why freedom is through justification by faith alone. It's because the law was not added to give life. It was added to show sin and therefore show our hopelessness and helplessness to save ourselves. You can't do them all perfectly. No one ever has. We need a savior to do them in our place. So then finally... Why freedom is through justification by faith alone? It's because the promise was realized. Jesus did come. And so because God kept his word, because Jesus is who he says he is, that's how you get saved. It's through him and him alone. Look at it in the text here. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture, the Scripture, His Scripture is the Old Testament at this point, imprisoned everything under sin. It basically said we're all sinners and unable to deliver ourselves from this sinful state. The Old Testament tells us that. So that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Some wrongfully say, well, then if the law, the Mosaic law, doesn't apply to us today, then why would we read the Old Testament? 
you've just conflated two things. The law and the Old Testament are two different things. The law is a portion of the Old Testament. The Old Testament tells us how we're imprisoned in sin and how a Savior is to come and how that Savior is Jesus, the one who will suffer in the place of sinners, the one only to whom we can hope in. The Old Testament is meant to be read and enjoyed and loved. We'll talk about that next week. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Now, verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. That's the role of the law, to help us see that we're captive in sin. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come. Whose faith? Sunday school answer. Amen. Okay. Those of you who have never been to church, you don't know that reference, but some who grew up in the church, you know every answer that you can give. If you just say Jesus, you're pretty safe. So here we are. Whose faith? Faith personified. It's Jesus. Now, before faith came, we were imprisoned. But now, verse 25, that faith has come, we're no longer under the law. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And it says, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, whether you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter. You're Abraham's child by faith in Christ. You get all the promises made to Abraham through faith alone. You are heirs according to the promise. So it says in Acts chapter 13, verse 38 and 39, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, that through this man Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is set free or justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. This is what the umbrella of freedom is over this book is that freedom from the, power, from the penalty of sin and the eventual power of sin is through faith alone, not through the law of Moses. So what does it look like? What does it look like to say with our lives that we are heirs of the promise of God, not by our works, but by God's work in our place, by simple faith alone? Here's some ways that we can maybe have some wrong thinking and not be believing the freedom that our justification is by faith alone. Jerry Bridges calls this the good day, bad day mentality. The good day, bad day mentality is that if you are doing good in a certain day, you believe everything's going to be good. But if you do something wrong, all of a sudden you're tempted to believe that God is against you. That he's not working for you or that the rest of your day will go bad. Have you ever done that? Like I've gotten out of bed before and I genuinely have felt kind of rotten. Not like sick rotten, but just like emotionally blah. And I have said in my brain, this day is going to be horrible. Have you ever done that? Okay. The first service, they just looked at me. They just stared at me. And I'm like, you really going to leave me out here on an island by myself? (laughs) Every one of you felt that. Stop that mess. (laughs) You get out of bed. And you're tempted to forecast everything built upon your feelings. Or the day was good. And then you take one misstep at the beginning of that day. 
give in to something you shouldn't have given in to. You say something you shouldn't have said. You think something you shouldn't have thought. And all of a sudden, you feel guilt. And that's appropriate. It's God's kindness saying, don't act that way. It's going to destroy you. But in his love, you don't think love anymore. You think, now I've got to make up for this. And you're tempted to think the rest of the day is going to be rotten. I failed. Now, somehow we begin to think that God is now not fully for us like he was when we were doing well. You are not living in the freedom of justification by faith alone when you operate with this good day, bad day mentality. God loves you by faith alone. He doesn't love you by your performance. He loves you because you trust in him. And then you might say, but what about, I've got... I've got weak faith. I look at this person over here and they're strong and they're stable. God loves them more than he does me. Not because of them, but maybe because I'm just rotten and I'm I'm half-hearted and I'm not good enough. Some people think that and others are just like, you believe this mentality that God is working harder for them than he is for you. All of it built upon your performance. You compare yourselves to others. It does not say you are justified by strong faith. It says you're justified by faith. And when Jesus uses the illustration and the analogy, he doesn't say it's the oak tree of faith that is justified. He uses what? The mustard seed. Because it's not about the portion of your faith. It's about the fact of do you trust him for the forgiveness of your sins? Does faith exist? And you're tempted when you compare yourself to others that God is somehow, you know, 95% for them and and like 45% for you because you're weak. It's not true. God loves you. He is for you fully because his son's righteousness is what he sees when he looks at you by faith alone. Dear friends, I pray. I pray that you are not tempted to look at your weakness, to look at your fragility, and to say, God's not, he's just frustrated at that. Don't look at your neighbor and try to compare. Don't look at your day and your feelings and try to see that, does God really love me? Instead, look at the cross and live in the freedom that is yours by just, in justification by faith alone. God is fully for you. By faith alone. And that's enough. Let's pray.